Bazaar is a podcast that deals with mature subject matter that some listeners may find offensive or upsetting. The Bazaar is not recommended for any listeners under 18 years of age. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome to The Bazaar. You'll be happy to know that (laughs) I have accomplished something big amongst (gasps) this pandemic. Yes. I have finished The Sinner, finally. Thank you so much, everyone. It's been a long time. Thank you. Thank you so much for your applause. Claps from the uh, studio audience. (laughs) What are one-person studio audience? I finally finished The Sinner. And let me tell you, I was a little underwhelmed in the ending. I didn't love the ending of it that much. Uh, But, oh, God, what's his face? Uh, Who played the, like, sinner, I'm guessing. Uh, (laughs) In season three, he's so good. He's been in a lot of shows. He's really handsome. No, what's his name? Oh, God, no, I'm going to look it up. He's, like, he's been in so many things. Okay. I really want to help you. Is it Matt Bomer? Is that <gasps> it? Is he an I love Matt Bomer. Uh, Are you true. thinking he was in Glee, White Collar, American Horror Story? Yeah, isn't isn't that who that is? Overview. Okay, this should tell me who's in it. Yeah, I think it's Matt Bomer. Yeah, Matt Bomer is in the center. Okay, okay, yes. Matt Bomer. And let me just say, he is is he a, a guilty party in the Third season, yes. But is he really handsome? Yes. I Would have I still not, look up with him? Absolutely. I haven't seen The Sinner. However, I adore Matt Bomer. I've had an obsession with him since I was, like, probably 13. So, I He's incredible. He's incredible. Also, when I Googled season three of The Sinner, apparently there's going to be a season four, which is just incredible because I love that show so much. Um, I just think it's one of those like crime shows where all of the characters in some way are just like inherently flawed. There's not like this like good guy, bad guy thing going on between like the cops and like um, the murderer or something like every character heavily including the detective who's like in seasons one to three like they're all like heavily flawed people which i think is just really important so gotta love that love that (laughs) energy um what else is going on in the world right now oh um yesterday was was trans oh my gosh visibility day or what's the actual term for it yeah, I think it's Transgender Visibility Day or Day of Visibility. Yeah, Day of Visibility, a Day of Awareness. Ha- happy belated by the time this episode comes out on Friday. Yeah. That was all my social media was filled with like beautiful colors and people like sharing their stories, which was just so incredible. So it was just nice to log on to social media and see nice things for once. Yeah. Um, alternatively... Yesterday, we got wind that Ontario is probably going into another lockdown. Or, sorry, shutdown. Mm. (sighs) I'm so frustrated because every time I get in contact with a tattoo artist about getting another tattoo, Doug Ford's like, lockdown, everyone? Lockdown? It just... Every time. It's like he psychically knows. He psychically knows. 
you know, somehow. Just, I'm happy I have a job right now that doesn't have to rely on indoor and outdoor patio dining. Like I have two yeah. jobs and one of them is like still able to function during this because like, like I understand the need for a lockdown, but Ontario's not doing it correctly. So we just keep going into these half-ass lockdowns that only affect, like that only hurt like restaurant workers and personal care workers. So like hairstylists and tattoo artists and yep, like, yep. The, like it's just these people that are getting like pooped on. So I have a question. Is this lockdown like there will be no more patios? Like everything yeah. will be shut? So basically, basically what they're shutting down is patios, any kind of personal uh, care stuff. So hairstylists, tattoo artists, everything like that. So nothing that was able to open anyway. Yeah. Um, retail stores, essential retail stores are going to 50% and non-essential retail stores are going to 25% capacity. So like... Instead of just shutting everything down, we're just kind of shutting things down again. Okay. So that makes zero sense to me. I don't understand. This week, we're going to be talking about Lizzie Borden. Oh, okay. okay. I hope we haven't done this before in an episode. I don't think we have. Talked about Lizzie Borden? I haven't. Okay, so... At least it, I was like, it definitely wasn't the season of Morgan. So I was like, I know that like I haven't touched on it with Morgan. <laughs> so for those who don't know, you might be familiar with like the nursery rhyme that's associated with Lizzie Borden. It's Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. And that's what we like to call feminism. Very, yes, very <laughs> commonly sung on a schoolyard <laughs> very commonly sung in a schoolyard and it's somehow implemented in a lot of horror movies like yeah it's like something that someone would like sing if they're possessed by the devil which i truly don't know what one has to do with the other but anyways lizzie borden is so entrenched in a lot of like horror culture yeah um, i think there was like a play that we studied in university about lizzie borden yeah um it was about her niece, her cousin, or something like someone. I know I exactly. Was like someone was playing her in like a a play, and she was like blood insulting. blood ties. Maybe was that what it was called? It was yeah no. It was basically like someone was playing her in a play, but she was uh, and she had to figure out whether or not she was innocent. To authentically play her, yeah. To authentically play her and, like, Lizzie Bort. And, like, she spoke to, like, the cousin or something that was still in contact with her. It was a very interesting play. Very interesting play. Can't remember the name of it for the fucking life of me. I think it was called Blood Blood Relations. Blood Relations. Thank you. See, we, we took something away from that degree. We... We got it. Um, Got it. So Lizzie Borden was born on July 19th of 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts to Sarah Anthony Morse and Andrew Jackson Borden. Her father, who was an English and Welsh descent, um, grew up in a very modest home and struggled financially as a young man, despite being the descendant of wealthy and influential um, residents before him. So he eventually like did what white men 
did at that time, you know, Bosford, like, did he steal the work from other people? Probably. (laughs) Um, Anyways, (laughs) he became the manufacturer and salesman of furniture and caskets. Um, So after that, after he was like, you know what, I don't feel like making wooden things anymore. I'm just going to go into like property development again, like many white men in Ontario. Yeah. Um, he's, He's like, fuck it. Property development. Here we go. I'm going to own a home. <laughs> I'm going to own my home, several other homes. I'm going to own factories. I'm just going to buy everything. So he became the director of several textile mills and owned commercial properties. Also in his like free time, he was the president of the Union Savings Bank and the director of Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. So he... He spread that money around like he had several, several points of income. But despite his wealth, Andrew was known for being super frugal. Like he did. It did. He would make money, but he would not spend his money. Okay. So you'd think, okay, the the Bordens must have this like very like wealthy home. This like rich person's home. No, they actually had no indoor plumbing at the time, even though. It was common for the wealthy. Like, they were wealthy, but if you were to step into their home, you'd be like, okay, okay where's the money then? <laughs> like, he just didn't spend it or put it into the needs of his family. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So, despite their home being in, like, an affluent area, they didn't have a lot of the things that, like, affluent or fashionable families had at the time. Mm-hmm. Um. So they also, like, despite being in, like, a wealthy neighborhood, they were, their house was on, like, the hill, that's what it was called, which was slightly removed from the rest of the houses. So they were sort of, like, living a separate life. Okay. So Lizzie and her older sister, Emma, um, had a very religious upbringing and would often attend the Central Congregational Church. And as they grew up, they were actually, like, very involved in church activities, including teaching Sunday school. Um, which was, like, a very foundational point. So that's what they did. They were, like, Sunday school teachers. Hmm. I feel like back then there weren't a lot of career choices for women. I feel like that was, like, one of three options. <laughs> Sunday school teacher, stay-at-home mother. Maid? Yeah. <laughs> or sex worker. Like, okay, so there were four. There were four, essentially. Um, they had four options back then. They, like, set them all out in front of you, like, in a magazine, and they're like, pick one. Yeah, they, you did the little quiz to tell you what you would be best at. <laughs> there was, like, a personality, like, aptitude test. Tells yeah. you whether or not you're more suited to be, like, a sex worker, a school teacher, <laughs> a mother, or a maid. Like, that's it. Oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ. Okay, Morgan, out of those four options, if you had to pick one, what would you pick? Um, oh God, I don't know. Maybe a maid. (laughs) I feel like that's the worst. I feel like people are like freaking chamber pots and stuff. Like I would. Oh, back then. Yeah. Um, Not today. Like back then, if you had to pick. Probably just a stay at home mom then. I think I'd pick school teacher because at least I get to like learn things. Yeah. Because I feel like being a sex worker, if it's not safe now, it's definitely not safe then. Like you die at the age of 30. Yeah. A bunch of diseases. No, you're right. <laughs> I think school teacher is about the only option. Um, no, you're, yeah. Right? Like you're, <laughs> anyways, we've come far. 
Um, okay. So three years. Um, nope, I skipped a part. No, nope. I did. Never mind. Okay. So during their like young adulthood, um, Lizzie Borden's mother died. And three years after that, Andrew married Abby Durfee Gray. Durfee? Durfee. Whatever. Andrew remarried this woman, Abby. And Lizzie had stated several times that she called her stepmother Mrs. Borden. um, Instead of actually ever calling her mother or having any sort of, like, relationship with her. Um, Because she believed that Abby had married her father for his money. And that was it. So they had a very, like, formal, closed-off relationship. They didn't talk or anything like that. They were not family. So another person, a part of this familial structure that's, like, really, like, tense and passive-aggressive is um, Bridget Sullivan, whom they called Maggie. I'm not really sure how Bridget Sullivan became Maggie. Like, I don't – usually a nickname, like, sounds like their name. Yeah. So I'm genuinely confused how they got like Maggie, like Bridget Sullivan. Anyways, mm-hmm. it was their 25 year old live in maid who had immigrated from the US to Ireland. Um, Classic. Yeah. So she was like a, a big part of the household. She also like reported saying that Lizzie and Emma, the two daughters, never ate meals with their parents. So, like with their stepmom and their father, they never ate together. So actually, in July of 1892, both the sisters uh, randomly took an extended vacation to an area called New Bedford. Um, This was because the family allegedly had this, like, huge blowout argument. They only returned to their hometown a week before the murders. And Lizzie actually chose to stay in a local boarding house for four days before returning to the family residence, which resulted in murder. Yeah. So it's like, it's a little weird that like she didn't want to stay there and then randomly ended up going home. (laughs) So a night before the murders, John Morse, the brother of Lizzie's and Emma's deceased mother, visited and was invited to stay for a few days to discuss business matters with Andrew. And like across the internet, the vast interwebs, it's really difficult. Like nobody can track down what exactly they were talking about for business matters, but it probably had to deal with like if I was to guess Andrew's amount of like land he'd acquired or it's something and maybe the uncle wanted to get in on it or like mm-hmm. whatever so everything pretty much returns to normal Emma and Lizzie are back they move back into the house things go back to their normal like routine of like passive aggression um, <laughs> Good. the uncle is also there visiting and is in and out of business meetings with Andrew Um, During these couple of days, the entire household gets violently sick, like really, really sick. And um, it's speculated that mutton left on the stove to use in meals um, had gone bad. Um, But Abby, the stepmother at that time, in the days leading up to her death, was fearing that poison was involved because unsurprisingly her husband Andrew Borden was not a popular man he was kind of an asshole sounds like it I mean I'm not shocked (laughs) um (laughs) so John Morse arrived in the evening of August 3rd 
and slept in the guest room that night. After breakfast the next morning, at which Andrew, Abby, Lizzie, him, and Maggie, the maid, were present, Andrew and John Morris left to the sitting room, where they had chatted for nearly an hour. So everything was normal. They all had breakfast together. And then Andrew and John went off to, like, do manly things, which were chatting. Ah, yes, chatting probably with, like, a glass of whiskey. Yes, I agree. They were probably swishing it around. They had, like, handlebar mustaches. One of them Yeah, 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 yeah. They were just going, mm, yes, yes, mm, indubitably. <laughs> Anyways, John left the house around 8.48 a.m. Sincerely, I would like to know how we have these exact time increments. Yeah, I mean... Because that's something I've been questioning throughout the entire time of reviewing this. This yeah. was like 1892. You're telling me they're walking around like at the second, the minute. They're like, okay... As John, I remember leaving at exactly 8.48 a.m. Yeah, I guess, like, more wealthy folks would have, like, a stopwatch. Like, even if he's not going to give his family water. um, That's the uncle. Like, so the uncle. Oh. And he knows exactly he left talking to Andrew at 8.48 a.m. I'm like, do you write down the time? Because if I'm later questioned by police, I wouldn't be like, yeah, no, I left around 8.48 a.m. Yeah. I'd be like, I don't know, it was like 8-ish. It was like, I don't know. Like, (laughs) it was early in the morning. Like, And we're at an age of smartphones where we can literally, like, pull it up at any second. Yeah. Anyways, I don't know how accurate these times are. That was a long-ass winded way of saying that. So, John Morse, the uncle, leaves at 8.48 a.m. apparently to buy a pair of oxen and visit his niece in Fall River, planning to return to the Borden home for lunch at noon. And then Andrew left right after him for his morning walk around 9 a.m. So, although the cleaning of the guest room was one of Lizzie's and Emma's regular chores for living with their father... Abby, the stepmother, went upstairs sometime between 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. to make the bed because the girls didn't. According to forensic investigation, after Abby had, like, made the bed, she had turned and was facing her killer at the time of the, ta- of the attack. Ooh. As I stated at the beginning of the episode, she was hit on the head with a hatchet. So it cut her just above the ear, causing her to fall and turn towards the floor creating contusions on her nose and forehead. Her killer had struck her multiple times, delivering 17 more direct hits to the back of her head. So she'd gotten struck the first time, fell, and was still alive, even though she was just hit with a hatchet. And then her killer, I guess, saw that she was still alive and just hit her 17 more times to the back of her head. Um, when Andrew returned from his walk around 10.30 a.m., his key failed to open the door, so he knocked. Um, Maggie went to go unlock the door, finding it jammed with something. She would later testify that she had heard Lizzie laughing immediately after this, but didn't see her. Like, just heard laughter <laughs> coming at the top of the stairs. Which terrifying. is the most, like, terrifying thing. Yep. Um, This is really significant because Abby is already dead at this time. 
and her body would have been visible to anyone on the home's second floor. So if Lizzie's upstairs laughing, presumably she'd be able to see that Abby is dead. Yeah, maybe it was a, uh, like, a hysterical laughter, like... Yeah, so... Holy fuck, what happened? (laughs) So it's, yeah, it's, like, important to note that, like, Lizzie had... Even if Lizzie didn't kill her, she'd seen the dead body and was laughing. Yeah. Um... So Lizzie later denied being upstairs and testified that her father had asked her where Abby was, and she had replied that a messenger had delivered Abby a summons to visit a sick friend. But that's not true because Abby was dead upstairs. So Lizzie stated that she then removed her father's boots and helped him into his slippers before he laid down on the sofa for a nap. Again, Nobody knows that Abby's dead body is upstairs. Presumably. (laughs) Presumably. Um, uh, So he didn't usually take naps during the day. um, As well as there are certain anomalies in Lizzie's story that A, that Abby wasn't home and B, that she helped her father and took off his boots because in a crime scene photo, his boots are on. Like, he's wearing his boots. Um, She then said that she informed Maggie of a department store sale and asked her to go. But Maggie felt unwell and instead went to go take a nap in her bedroom in another part of the house. So, Maggie testified that she was in her third floor room, like in the servants' quarters, resting from cleaning windows, just before 11, 10 a.m., when she heard Lizzie call from downstairs, Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Someone came in and killed him. I know okay. what you're thinking. Very strange. Very strange. And I agree with you. <laughs> because when Maggie comes downstairs, what she sees is Andrew slumped on the couch that he was napping on, was struck 10 or 11 times with a hatchet, one of his eyeballs had been split in half, suggesting what he'd been asleep when he was attacked. He was lying down on the couch, and the hatchet went cleanly through his eyeball. Uh, and he uh, was still freshly bleeding, which means it was very recent. So the doctor was called, which is just hilarious that they called the doctor, because what the fuck is he going <laughs> to um, <laughs> Doc, there might be something wrong with this guy. <laughs> Can you imagine getting a call and, be, and, and, like, showing up and being like, okay, okay, who's bleeding out? What's going on? And they're like, no, no one's actually, like, bleeding out. Like, he's, he's dead. Um, so he comes there. <laughs> Can you imagine walking in there? Like, we want you to determine that both these people are dead. Like, you wouldn't have to touch them to know. You'd be like, he has no eyeball. They're dead. Um, I would just stand in the door and be like, I don't need to touch him to know. That guy's, he's dead. I don't know. Back then, though, like, you know, you were a doctor, you were a coroner, you were a chef. Like, it just, like, <laughs> there were, like, eight things all rolled up into one. <laughs> you also moonlit as, like, a bartender on the weekends. 100%, yeah. Um. I, lo- I actually think it would be very easy to be a doctor back then because you, you wouldn't know what to do for certain things. So you'd be like, I don't know. Put a leech on it. Uh, yeah. See what happens. Have you tried whiskey? <laughs> have you have you tried tea? 
<laughs> what about this laxative I just came up with? It's got <laughs> what a little I bit. Just of... cut you open and bled you out for an hour. Let's see if that helps. Yeah. <laughs> like literally, like it was just you were just fucking around as a doctor. Um, so after this, after the doctor points at the dead bodies and goes, "Yeah, they're dead," um, the police get involved. Uh, so Lizzie was taken into custody with the police, and there isn't a lot of information, understandably, about that interrogation because it was like a bajillion years ago. Um, he, but it one thing stayed constant through like me researching this, like looking on Wikipedia and everything, that her answers to the police officer's questions were strange and contradictory because like, as I mentioned, as I took you through the events of that day through her perspective, they don't make sense Um, that a, she didn't know that Abby was dead and B that she took off shoes, but then it was photographed of his body with the boots on. Like it doesn't, it doesn't add up. Like something is really, really off about this. Um, Detectives estimated that his death had occurred at approximately 11 a.m. So that means Maggie was already napping because she was woken up at 10 past 11. Hmm. Uh, so both of them were dead by 11 a.m. So that means that Lizzie would have had to have waited until Maggie went upstairs. Yeah. To bed to kill her father. So initially she had reported... Um, hearing a groan, a scraping noise, and distress before, like, at re-entering the house. So then the police were like, what do you mean re-entering the house? And she's like, oh, I went outside, came back, and my father was dead. Um, two hours later, she told the police that she actually heard nothing and entered the house not realizing things are wrong. So it doesn't make sense. She no. When the police asked her where her stepmother was, she recounted that Abby received a note asking her to visit a sick friend. She also stated she thought Abby had returned and asked if someone could go upstairs and look for her. But again, this never happened. Mm -hmm. So Maggie and a neighbor were halfway up the stairs, their eyes level with the floor, when they looked into the guest room and saw Abby lying face down on the floor. Most of the officers who had interviewed Borden reported that they disliked her attitude. Some said that she was too calm, too poised. Despite her attitude and changing alibis, nobody bothered to, like, actually check her physically for bloodstains. Uh, of course they didn't. No one checked her for bloodstains. Um, the police did search her room, but... They didn't, like, touch anything. They just, like, looked in her room. Uh, what else did they do? Yes. They were, like, criticized for their lack of diligence. They literally just, like, walked in rooms and went, yep, okay, nope. Uh, in the basement, the police found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. Where's the handle? Um, the hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon as the break in the handle appeared fresh and the ash and dust on the head, unlike that of the other bladed tools, appeared to have been deliberately applied to make it look like it had been in the basement for some time. So someone mm. had used it, wiped it clean, and then tried to put, like, dust and dirt on it to make it look like it had always been down there. Okay. Like, the level of steps to carry out this murder is 
meticulous. Someone would have to know the house, know the movements of the family, know where the axes are, all of these things. Presumably leading up to the idea that somebody would know this these people very well to be able to pull this off. Mm-hmm. So none of these tools were ever inspected or removed from the house by police. Nothing. Instead, they became more focused on the mysterious illness that had stricken the household before the murders. So the family's milk um, and Andrew's and Abby's stomachs were tested for poison. Um, but none was found in like the family's milk delivery. None was found in their systems. Mm-hmm. Although people suspected Lizzie of purchasing hydrocanic acid, yep, whatever that is, in a diluted form from the local drugstore. So it's presumed that she tried to poison them first. And like when that didn't work, she was like, all right, plan B. (laughs) We're bringing out the hatchet. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes you just have to bring out the hatchet, apparently. So police were stationed around the house on the night of August 4th. And Lizzie and Emma's friend, Alice Russell, decided to stay with them the night following the murders because people didn't want to think that a woman was capable of murder. And Lizzie at this point was telling everyone that someone had come into the house. So they were scared that whoever this someone was would come back into the house and finish the, finish the job killing Lizzie and Emma. So during which on the night of August 4th, a night after the murders, a police officer said he had seen Borden enter the cellar carrying a kerosene lamp and a slop pail. He saw both the women exit the cellar, after which Borden returned alone, although he was unable to see what she was doing. It stated that it appeared that she was bent over the sink. So on August 5th, their uncle left the house and was mobbed by, like, hundreds of people. Police had to escort him back to the house. He, like, couldn't go out and, like, run errands. So, and then on August 6th, oh, my God, I almost smacked it. (laughs) The police come back, finally, for a more thorough search, like, three days after the murder Mm -hmm. inspecting that serious cleaning had been done between those days like obviously (sighs) and during this time they inspected the sister's clothing and finally confiscated the broken handled hatchet head um the next morning the um the next morning alice russell their friend who was staying with them entered the kitchen to find something really strange. Lizzie Borden was tearing up a dress. Hmm. Just for fun? <laughs> Just, I'm sorry, I wanted to do like a fun Pinterest thing with this dress. Mm, I'm, mm, perfect, what is yeah. it called when you're thrifting something and you're like upcycling it she's like oh she's upcycling yeah yeah yeah, yeah for sorry, sure. <laughs> i'm really stressed my dad just died i'm just gonna upcycle this dress um so she appeared at an inquest hearing on august 8th her request to have her family attorney present was refused under a state statute providing that an inquest must be held in private uh she explained that she was planning to put the dress on fire because it was covered in paint it was never determined whether that was the dress she'd been wearing on the day of the murders. If the police had done an actual investigation on the day of the murders and not like three days later when yeah. cops were stationed there and noticed her going back and forth with a bunch of soap, pails, and then tearing up a dress. Guys! You gave her three days to clean. Yeah, that's wild. 
I can clean really well in one day, let alone three. Like, women can clean very quickly because you yeah. come from a society where that's ingrained in us. Like, back then especially. Like, you don't think she could clean that house in three days and get rid of a lot of evidence? Like, sis can't. <laughs> so, in this inquest... Um, she'd been prescribed morphine to calm her nerves. And it's possible that her testimony was affected by this. So she was drugged by the police to calm her down in the middle of this inquest. Yeah. Um, she often refused to answer a question if the if the question like even would have been beneficial to her. She was really out of it. She often contradicted herself and provided al- alternating accounts of the morning in question saying that she was originally in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father arrived, and then saying she was in the dining room, and then saying she was coming down the stairs. She said she also removed her father's boots and put slippers on him, even though that's not true. Mm -hmm. The district attorney was also very aggressive and confrontational. So on August 11th, Lizzie Borden is arrived a warrant, is, sorry, is served with a warrant of arrest and she's put into jail immediately. I don't know. Is arrived a warrant sounds really uh, bougie. <laughs> arrived a warrant. <laughs> I'm just taking myself back to 1892. That's how I'm going to be speaking now. Um, so during this time, there was a lot of debate about her guilt because of the fact that she was given medication to calm down. Um, so her inquest testimony that she was given on penicillin, was it penicillin? Sorry. Morphine. Different things. Penicillin would not do anything. <laughs> yeah, it's morphine. Penicillin would just take down her fever. Um, yeah. <laughs> she had one. So actually, her testimonies of during the inquest were reviewed inadmissible during her trial in, in June of the following year. So she's in jail for a while, and she finally has her trial in June 1893. So several, like, the newspapers went wild about this. Oh, my God, a woman's capable of murder. Is this really happening? Blah, blah, blah. Um, so Lizzie Borden's trial was a very publicized case. Cases mm-hmm. that are similar to this, um, a lot of people talk about O.J. Simpson's trial. That's that's how public it was. It was in every newspaper Everyone, everyone was talking about it. it, it there was a frenzy mm-hmm. over Lizzie Borden. Uh, because crimes where women were held as guilty were not normal back then. Because yeah. the world had a very specific way of looking at women, especially like wealthy women. Yeah. Um, being ladies of society. So... A prominent point of discussion in Lizzie Borden's trial was the hatchet head found in the basement, which was not convincingly demonstrated by the prosecution to be the murder weapon. So the prosecution tried to argue that the killer had removed the handle because it would have been covered in blood. Um, One officer testified that a hatchet handle was found near the hatchet head, but another officer contradicted this. So it was basically like the officers were arguing amongst themselves and couldn't present a solid story when the prosecutors were interviewing them in the trial. So that really messed things up, that the, that the police officers did not have a unified front. Um, so amongst the dispute of the axe hatchet 
the hatchet, sorry, the handle being missing and the dress being burned. Um, her presence at the home was also a, a point of dispute. So Maggie, who was the maid, who was apparently there for the entire time, said that she had entered the second floor of the home at around 10.58 a.m. and left Lizzie and her father downstairs. Whereas said Maggie was going to go up to the servants' quarters and take a nap. Lizzie and her father were downstairs alone when she'd done that. Although Lizzie had told several people at this time she'd actually went into the barn and was not in the house for possibly half an hour, which doesn't make sense because Maggie was there having a conversation with her and then heard her laughing upstairs. Like they were in the same room when her father entered. Um, a neighbor testified that he saw Lizzie Borden leaving the barn at 11.03 a.m. And another person confirmed the time. At 11.10 a.m., Lizzie had called Maggie and told her that Andrew had been murdered. So we have about just over five minutes of time unaccounted for. So between 11, 11.03 and 11.10, we have no idea where Lizzie is. She's back in the house, but we don't know what she's doing. That there's, there's unaccounted time. And I wonder, is it enough time to, like, get a hatchet and, like, kill someone? Like, possibly. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you were going to do it. Like, if your cardio was good. <laughs> Keep in mind, she's wearing a lot of skirts, right? Yeah, that's true. But, I mean, it's possible. It's possible. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, <laughs> both victims' heads had... Um, this is a really, really weird fact. Both of the victims' heads had been removed during autopsy. Um, and their skulls were used as evidence in the trial. Like, they held up the skulls of the victims and presented them in court. Like, their actual skulls. Jesus. <laughs> I know. And upon seeing them in the courtroom, Lizzie Borden fainted. Which I'm like, yeah, like, you wouldn't? Like, I'm... Yeah. <laughs> I'd fucking faint. Um... So, after an hour and a half of deliberation, the jury, which was all men, by the way, the jury was all white men. Nice, okay. <laughs> they acquitted Lizzie Borden of the murders. Upon exiting the courthouse, she told reporters that she was, quote, the happiest woman in the world. Although acquitted at trial, Borden remains the prime suspect in her father's and stepmother's murders. Um, and there's been, like, so many books about why she would have done this. Um, a prominent suggestion was that she was physically and sexually abused by her father, um, and her stepmother was sort of like a, not a participant, but knew about it and did nothing, and which is what drove her to kill them. Um, although there's not really a lot of evidence to support this. Like, again, like there's not a lot of physical evidence in general from 1892. Mm-hmm. Um, other people have suggested that Borden committed the murders after being caught in a lesbian relationship with Maggie, the housekeeper who would have been around the same age as her. Ah, uh, yes. Remember this one. That's also a theory. Um, and that her father would never let her be with Maggie. So she killed her father and her stepmother. Although there isn't much of a story of Maggie and her after this. So I don't. I, I heavily doubt that they were in love. I don't think that's what this was. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm always... Why weren't they, like, why didn't she rehire Maggie afterwards then? Like, why didn't she try to, like, take care of Maggie? Like, that's mm-hmm. the question I have. Like, if they were in love, then presumably yeah. Maggie would be going to bat for Lizzie and not giving against evidence. Her. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and not against her saying that her story didn't make sense. Um. So... Another theory is that Maggie giving that testimony was actually false and that she had helped Lizzie kill her family. Um, so that that she had um, that Maggie had disposed of the hatchet somewhere and afterwards, like basically was just like helping her clean and dispose of evidence, which I don't know if I believe either. Because it just doesn't make sense. It's too it's too perfect of a plot line for me. Um, because later Maggie moves away, marries a man, and works as a maid in Montana. Like, she goes and has a happy life away from. Um, people say that on her deathbed she confessed to saying that she, um, she knew about the murder. She knew Lizzie killed them. She'd seen it. And Lizzie tried to get her to be complicit. Complace- complicit? Complicit? Complacent? Complicit. Complicit. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, there's no proof for that. Like people are, it's just rumor. Another suspect is actually John Morse, Lizzie's maternal uncle, um, who rarely met with the family after his sisters died, but had slept in the house that night. Um, he was considered a suspect by police for a period. Other Others noted as potential suspects in the crimes include Maggie, by herself in retaliation for being ordered to clean the windows on a hot day. <laughs> They're like, it was the maid. She didn't want to do the one thing she was hired to do. Ah, uh, yes. It's always the maid. <laughs> always the maid, which just seems stupid to me. Um, after the trial, you'll be happy to know that the Borden sisters moved in together because oh. they got all the money that their father had. Yeah, that makes sense. So they took all this money and moved into a very large, very extravagant modern house in a wealthy area. Um, But, of course, the story of what happened could not leave the sisters behind. Mm -hmm. And it was reported that the relationship between the sisters became strained because Emma didn't know if she could ever trust her sister again because Emma was not there um, at the time that these murders had happened. At their new house... Um, Lizzie began to use the name Elizabeth, um, as if like changing her name would like make it all go away as if like everyone in this small town would suddenly not know who she is. Um, they donned their house, the name Maplecroft, and they had staff that included live-in maids, housekeepers, and coachmen. So they were living large. Mm. Um, because Abby was ruled to have died before Andrew, her estate went first to Andrew and then at his death passed to his daughters at the, as a part of his estate. Um, so Abby dies. The lawyers have to write papers for her money to go to her husband, but he's also already dead. So they had to rewrite. Oh my God, I keep hitting my microphone. Rewrite <laughs> those papers to go to his daughters. So none of Abby's family got any of her money, which was like a huge issue for her family. So despite being acquitted, Lizzie is ostracized by society. 
Um, Her name is brought into the public eye again when she's accused of shoplifting in 1897. In 1905, shortly after an argument over a party that Lisbeth had given for actress Nance O'Neill, Emma moves out of the house, and she never saw her sister again. Lizzie Borden died of pneumonia on June 1, 1927, in her home in Fall River. Funeral details were not published, and few people attended. Nine days later, Emma died at the age of 76 in a nursing home in Newmarket, New Hampshire. The sisters, neither of whom had married, were buried side by side in the family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. And that is the wild story of Lizzie Borden that I absolutely butchered, no pun intended. Uh With an axe? (laughs) I just think it's so interesting how, to me, she obviously did it. And the police just were like, we're just going to fuck off for three days and like not check the crime scene. We're just going to let people walk around in the crime scene, like let them sleep there, let them whatever. Um, A question I have too is like, like where was her sister? (laughs) Like you don't hear about Emma a lot. Emma was just kind of there. Yeah. um, But not there for the day of the murder. So it makes me wonder if her sister knew about it. Yeah. Because she never she never gave testimony about Lizzie. She never did anything about that. I'd Maybe it say, was just too hard. I'd want to say if I was up for murder, I really don't think my sisters would defend me. I'm going to take a public stance on that. I'm going to say they'd be like, yeah. I, I They would be like, hang the bitch. Like, they would, I don't think they would, they would stand up for me at all. Um isn't it like a, is it just married couple, couples that can't testify against each other in court it's, or is it's, it? It's just married couples. So if you oh, get married okay, to someone, mind. you technically can't testify against them. But siblings, you can. Parents, yeah, okay. you can. But for some reason, if you say some vows, sign that marriage certificate, Morgan, we should get married. And we have to wait for the right time. Post-pandemic? Post-pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> Marriage, so then so we can that. never testify each against each other in court. Perfect. It's either that or we go full born and style sisters. We ne- we don't get married to anyone. We don't have children. We pick a random gothic cemetery and we get buried side by side. Ooh, I like that one. <laughs> I think that's really cool. I think that's eerie. Yeah. No one will know. They'll have they'll be like these women have completely different names. Why are they buried side by side? Boom. And then we'll end up as a podcast episode one day. Wow. Comes we didn't do anything. It's just weird. <laughs> That's our life story. That should be the book we release one day. We didn't do anything. We're just weird. Yep. Thank you so much. Thank you.